This morning we're going to bring the book of Ruth to a quick conclusion. We've been uh, looking at the book of Ruth the last three weeks. Today is week four. The book breaks down into four chapters or four acts as we've been considering it as a kind of dramatic uh, unfolding, a play of sorts. Though these are real events in history recorded for us in the scriptures and we want to look into them this morning and see what God has for us. Let me give you a quick introductory review of where we've been in Act 1. We saw the bittersweet start to the story. Naomi's family abandons Bethlehem and goes to Moab to escape famine. Her two sons marry Moabite women, and after a decade in Moab, her husband and her two adult sons die. But then God lifts the famine in Bethlehem and provides food. So Naomi returns, grieving. And Ruth the Moabite chooses to go with her, becoming a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In Act 2, we saw the story shifting towards hope. Boaz, we're introduced to a new character, Boaz. He shows extraordinary generosity to Ruth and Naomi. And then in Act 3, we saw the tension of the story on the way to a happy ending. Naomi schemes to arrange a marriage between Ruth and Boaz, intending to provide rest for Ruth. So Ruth presents herself to Boaz in a kind of midnight rendezvous, uh, but she asks Boaz to provide redemption for Naomi. Boaz expresses a desire to both marry Ruth and also to take care of Naomi's family as well. But in his desire to remain utterly faithful to the Mosaic law, he points out a potential complication, the existence of a relative who has a legal obligation to act as redeemer for Naomi's family. So this morning in Act 4, we will see a happier ending than ever could be hoped for. So let's dive into this story. I actually want to read the concluding chapter all together, uh, all at once here at the beginning of our time. So if you'd open with me to Ruth chapter 4, let's look at the final scenes of the story uh, together. Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian, Kilion and to Mahlon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, 
who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Peretz. Peretz fathered Chetzron, Chetzron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nachshon, Nachshon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now let's see how this story unfolds to its grand climax. Act 4, scene 1. Mr. So-and-so selfishly shirks responsibility. Verses 1 through (laughs) 8. We're introduced to this fellow, this other redeemer that Boaz had spoken of. And we should see in the background of this God's providence. He has arranged the timing of this perfectly. Boaz shows up at the city gate early in the morning. And who should walk by but this other redeemer who's in question, the one who has an obligation to step in for Naomi's family. But look how Boaz addresses him. It's kind of interesting. Our English Bibles don't know exactly what to do with what he says here. Or maybe they do. Turn aside, he says at the end of verse 1. Turn aside, friend. But this Hebrew word is not a word for a, a buddy or a companion or a friend. It's a word that's kind of a... Made-up word, almost. It's a little phrase. I'll say it for you, and it sounds funny, so laugh. I haven't said it yet. Poloni almoni. The Hebrew is poloni almoni. It's a kind of phrase that you would use if you wanted to say so-and-so, or such-and-such. It's actually a way, probably here, to do a little bit of censoring. Ironically, the narrator who's writing the story doesn't really want us to know this fellow's name. Uh, Inevitably, Boaz would have actually called out his name, right? He knows the guy. They're relatives. He knows who he is. He would have known his name. And so as he's walking by, he would have shouted his name. But the narrator doesn't want us to know his name because he wants us to view him very negatively from the outset. And so he puts in this little funny phrase to just distance us from him and to make sure we don't get too close to him because he's not a good fellow. And so he gives this little made-up name and the way that I've brought it over into English is Mr. So-and-so, just to help us kind of remember uh, that this guy is not uh, meant to be upheld as any kind of example for us in any way. And so Boaz calls him down, has him sit down in the gate, and then calls ten elders of Bethlehem to sit down and This is the gate of the city. This is where uh, political dealings and court cases and business meetings would go on. It's kind of like the town hall, if you will. That's kind of a modern equivalent of what's going on here. So he gets the officials ready. He doesn't really tell them what it's about. But then he addresses this man directly. And through the course of these verses, verses 1 through 8, we're introduced to three legal issues. And it's a little bit complicated to tease these things out, but I'm going to try to fill in some of the legal background for us as we go through. So first, legal issue number one, Naomi is selling Elimelech's land. Now this is something we haven't heard of to this point in the story. We didn't know that she was selling Elimelech's land, and we don't know why she would do that. Um, But we can begin to think through the situation and come up with some probable reasons. 
uh, for why she's selling Elimelech's land. Elimelech was her husband. She is his widow, and she has no heirs. She has no sons. And so the property has kind of defaulted to her, which is an unusual situation in Israel. It would usually go to some male relative, but all the males in this family are gone, and the family line is about to end, it seems. And so the situation that we have is probably that Naomi recognizes that she's going to need some income. The, the harvest is over, and Boaz has generously cared for her food needs, probably for several months. But now that the harvest is over, she doesn't intend to presume on Boaz's kindness, though given what we know about Boaz, he probably would have been there all along. Nevertheless, she feels the need to sell some of her property. But that is actually a problem among the people of Israel. So let me give you the background there. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 to 28, tells us about the land and how people are supposed to handle their properties. We get a little bit of property law here in the midst of the Mosaic Law. Now, before we read these verses, Boaz has brought this up, and that's a really important thing to remember here. And I think what Boaz is doing is very shrewdly forcing the issue of redemption. And we'll see how that unfolds in the Mosaic Law. But Boaz, the first thing he wants to bring up is the issue of her selling her property. And I think he's wanting to force this other man to act in a certain way or to not act in a certain way. So let's look at the legislation in Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, 23 begins, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So in the Mosaic Law, Yahweh is reminding his people that the land is something that he owns and he has handed it over to them for their use and for their benefit. But it's been parceled out in particular places and to particular tribes and then to particular families. And God's intention is that the, the land would remain in the family to which it was originally given. That's God's intention, that it would stay in that family line. But God knows and God chooses to condescend to the situations that will inevitably unfold in some cases where people, will Israelites, will decide that they need to sell their land. And so he provides some specific legislation for how to deal with that situation. Even though, by his design and intention, it should never change hands, he knows that it will for certain reasons, and so he provides some legislation for how to deal with it. And so that's what we see here in the next verses. Verse 24, Leviticus 25, 24. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest kinsman redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property." But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. I have to confess, I'm kind of glad that the United States of America doesn't have a law like this, having just bought a parcel of property. To know that someone might have the right to buy it back from me, or to get it back without paying for it, a few years, would be distressing to me. But nevertheless, given the theology of the land here, that is the situation in Israel. So God has provided a way that the land would remain in the family line. So if somebody becomes poor, and that's the situation of Naomi at this point, she's lost her livelihood, she's lost her family, she's lost the men of her family in particular, she's going to need some income, she feels the need to sell the land, and so Boaz is saying that's what she's doing. She's put it up for sale. And so the legislation gives two ways to deal with that. One, she could go ahead and sell the land, and so somebody outside the family could buy it. If that happens, at some point, a relative of hers should 
Note the should language has an obligation to step in and buy it back for her. Or if there's no redeemer who can do it. So he has to be willing to do it. He has to be able to do it. But if there's no one in the family who can or will do it, then in the jubilee year, the land would revert back to her family line anyway. Now, you want to read more about the Jubilee year, that's what the rest of Leviticus 25 is all about. But basically, every 50 years calculated from the Exodus, so they were supposed to keep track of that, every 50 years they were supposed to celebrate the Jubilee year. And during the Jubilee year, two things were supposed to happen primarily. One, all of the property, all of the land was supposed to go back to whomever originally owned it when it was parceled out under Joshua. Supposed to go back. And the other thing is that anybody who was sold into slavery is supposed to be set free if they want to be. That's supposed to happen every 50 years. So, Mr. So and so here hears the news that his relative is about to sell her property. And so Boaz is presenting him with an opportunity to do the best thing possible. Ideally, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, would step in and buy the property before it's sold outside the family. That's the ideal situation, that he would buy it before the sale goes through so that it maintains and stays at least in the family, if not in the direct family lineage, which is where it needs to go eventually anyway. And so Boaz presents the opportunity here, but notice that it's not just an opportunity. This is not about just rights or privileges. This is a legal obligation on this fellow. Look again at Leviticus uh, 25, uh, verse 25. Leviticus 25, 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Not may come, not can come, but shall. That's command language. That's obligation language. And so Boaz is setting the stage here and saying, you, sir, have an obligation to take care of Naomi's family. And initially he responds, all right, I'll do it. Now, given that the narrator has kind of censored Mr. So-and-so's real name and has kind of shifted us to think, "Uh, something's up with this guy. We should be suspicious of his motives at this point. Especially we know he's going to pull back in just a minute. He's going to back out of his obligation in just a moment when Boaz reveals some more information about what's going on here. And so I, I wonder why does he initially say, yeah, that seems like a good deal. I think that Mr. So-and-so is attempting to take advantage of a loophole in the Mosaic Law. There's a loophole in the Mosaic Law at this point. And that's nothing to say that God's law is not perfect or complete, okay? But there is a way that a sinful person could get around what's being said here. The law, the land, is supposed to stay in a particular family line. What happens if that family line dies out completely? So Naomi is an older widow. She's beyond childbearing age. She's got no descendants. We don't know when exactly this happens, but it could be that they're several years away from the Jubilee year, many, many years away. And so Mr. So-and-so may be making a little bit of a calculated risk here, saying, you know, if I pay some money, buy this plot of land, and then Naomi dies without an heir, then the land has got nowhere to go but to stay with me. And so I could keep the land, farm it, make a profit off of it long-term. So I think Mr. So-and-so here is thinking long-term investment... This is a good deal. This is a great investment. There's a high probability maybe that Naomi's going to die and she's going to be off the scene and then the land's got nowhere to go but to stay with me and my family line. And so he gets it to build up his own family inheritance. I think that might be what's going on here for Mr. So-and-so. But then Boaz, again, shrewdly introduces legal issue number two. Ruth and the Leveret Wrinkle. Ruth and the leveret wrinkle. Boaz tells him, and again, it's just interesting to think, why didn't Boaz just say this up front? Boaz is being a little sneaky. He's probably too negative of a word, but he's being very shrewd. He wants to get Mr. So-and-so interested, and then he really wants Mr. So-and-so 
to back out. And that's exactly what happens. And I think Boaz is driving toward that. So he introduces Ruth into the equation, into the transaction, if you will. And we're supposed to remember here that since Ruth has pledged herself to Naomi, converted to worshiping Yahweh, and become a legitimate part of Israel, if she were to marry a kinsman redeemer and bear a son, then that son would become heir of Elimelech's land. Let me remind you of that legislation from Deuteronomy 25. So we've been in Leviticus 25, and now we're in Deuteronomy 25. And Boaz kind of brings them together in a unique way. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, that word husband's brother in Latin is levir. And so that's where we get the term leveret. Maybe you've heard the leveret marriage. That's what we're talking about here, leveret marriage. just comes from the Latin term for a husband's brother. And they use that here to refer to what's going on. Deuteronomy 25 verse 6 then says, And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So Boaz cleverly, shrewdly brings together the Redeemer legislation and the leveret Legislation puts them together and says, you, sir, are responsible to fulfill both of these obligations. That's on you, buddy. And he wants the one, but not the other. He thinks he can benefit from the one, but the other one is going to hurt him long term. So if Mr. So-and-so redeems Elimelech's land, and Ruth bears a son that would be counted as Elimelech's heir, then Mr. So-and-so will lose on his investment. He will have spent money for the redemption of the land, but the land will not remain in his family line, but instead will pass into the possession of Ruth's son and will no longer benefit Mr. So-and-so and his family. Now again, Mr. So-and-so here has a legal obligation to serve as both kinsman redeemer by redeeming the land and also the levir who must seek to produce offspring with Ruth who will then own the land and pass it on in a separate family line. The issue of redemption and the Redeemer has to do with the land. The issue of the Levere, the husband's brother, has to do with the lineage and the inheritance. The point's clear. Boaz is shrewdly introducing the possibility that this investment will not provide a good, lasting return for Mr. So-and-so as a motivation for him to abandon his obligation and let it pass to Boaz, who legally is next in line. And so then we come to legal issue number three, concerning sandals and shame. Being unwilling to pay the cost of redemption... To sacrifice his own prospect of financial gain, Mr. So-and-so abandons his legal obligation and allows Boaz to take his place. So to symbolize this and to provide a proof, instead of what we might do, sign a document or in the olden days, shake a hand, Mr. So-and-so removes one of his sandals and gives it to Boaz so that in the future, if there were a question about Boaz's claim on Elimelech's land, or, or if there's a question about how Elimelech's land remained in the family, given the situation without sons and without heirs, Boaz can simply produce the lonely sandal to show the proof. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 7 to 10, following right along from what we read before, we, we read about what would happen, what should happen, if a man refuses to fulfill his legal, legal obligation to marry his dead brother's wife in the case that they didn't have a son together. The widow, in that sense, is the, in that situation, the widow is supposed to remove the sandal of her dead bro- husband's brother in front of the elders and then spit in his face as a way of shaming him for abandoning his legal obligations. And then in verse 25, in Deuteronomy 25, 10, it says, And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> now, this is not exactly what happens here in Ruth 4. 
neither Ruth nor Naomi is present to remove Mr. So-and-so's sandal. And we're told that the custom of the day, this book being written later on, a couple of generations later perhaps, the custom of the day was to present a sandal as proof of the transfer of land or a transaction like this. But I can't help but think that we should see Mr. So-and-so's actions as shameful here, even though his removal of his own handle and handing it over to Boaz is simply attesting the validity of the transaction. According to the Mosaic law, the transaction should never take place. The land is not supposed to transfer that way. And so Boaz steps in and takes up the obligation. He is a family member. He is next in line. He can carry that obligation forward. But I just... I'm just imagining Mr. So-and-so hobbling home on one sandal and everybody seeing it. It seems like there would be some shame there along the way. Well, at any rate, let's press on and see the next scene. Act 4, scene 2. Boaz then selflessly, in contrast to Mr. So-and-so, selflessly accepts responsibility, verses 9 through 12. So Boaz announces in front of the elders, I've got the sandal, I've got the right, I've got the obligation, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it for myself. I'm going to marry Ruth. I'm going to buy the land to benefit Naomi and her family line. And then the elders and the people, it says all the people. So apparently as this is going on, Bethlehem city townsfolk start gathering to see what's going on here in the city gates. Uh, And that's the kind of thing that would unfold. Probably pretty boring in the ancient world in Bethlehem, looking for something to do. You can't go to the movies. So you go to the city gate and see... Who's suing who? (laughs) And you just kind of watch these things unfold. Um, But they give a blessing to Ruth and to Boaz. And it's rather interesting the way that they word it. If you will look at, again, at Ruth 4, verse 11. All the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So they accept the role to witness the transaction, to verify its validity, and then they pronounce this blessing. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So that's the first blessing on Ruth. And the blessing is to take her and us back to the book of Genesis. And two of these blessings, the first one and the last one, are going to do that for us. So back to Genesis part 1. Ruth is to be like Rachel and Leah. Now Rachel and Leah are interesting when we think about who they are, when they come into the story, and what they accomplish. Rachel and Leah are pagan women. They are introduced to us as Laban's daughters, Arameans. They're not in Abraham's line. They're not Jewish like Ruth. And so there's an outsider perspective here that is important. Ruth is to be like these other pagan foreign women who ended up coming into the people of Israel, joining up with the people of Israel, leaving their homes, leaving their people, joining Israel and ultimately Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then they become the mothers of the twelve sons of Israel, who will represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, if you remember the story, you will remember that Rachel and Leah did not bear all those sons in their own bodies. They had two concubines, secondary wives to good old Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And they they carried in their womb some of those sons. But legally, those sons belonged to Rachel and Leah. Legally. They are the mothers of all Israel. So the blessing here is incredibly significant for this Moabite woman. The idea is that just like Rachel and Leah, these non-Jews were grafted in to the people of Israel and provided a hugely significant function in the outworking of God's plan of redemption through the people of Israel by bearing the twelve sons. The blessing and the prayer is that Ruth likewise would be so grafted in and so included in God's plan that the sons that she bears would provide a similar significance so that this Moabite woman becomes a mother 
that would lead to something just as significant as the whole people of Israel. And ultimately, the end of the story tells us what that is. She becomes the ancestress, if you will, of King David. And not just King David, if we take it in context of the whole of Scripture, but of the Messiah. It's at this point that we begin to realize the significance of this little beautiful story during the period of the Judges. What we are discovering here is that the very line that was prophesied to come, the great king of Israel, who would ultimately bring the great redemption of Israel, David at one level, but ultimately the great Messiah, that line is being threatened during the period of the Judges. It's almost snuffed out. And so just imagine for a moment what would happen if, this didn't, if Boaz didn't come through. What would happen if Naomi died and Ruth died with no children? The lineage of the Messiah would be cut off. That's why this story is in the Bible. During the period of the Judges, when everything else is horrible and terrible, the very messianic line is being threatened. And if you go back to the book of Genesis, that's actually a really common theme. The Abrahamic line was threatened at several points by barrenness, by disobedience, by all kinds of ugly things. And so it was during the period of the judges, and so it was at other times as well. And God intervenes to make sure that that line continues to show that His purposes are being accomplished. And He does it through foreigners. He does it through Gentiles. He does it through pagans. It's a beautiful picture Don't miss the significance of all of that. The second blessing there is also in verse 11. Uh, May you act worthily. That's a verbal form for the title or the label that's already been given to Boaz by the narrator. You are a worthy man. And so the blessing is, would you continue acting worthily? Would you continue being the faithful man that you have been? Continue living the ideal Israelite life. Somebody in conversation with me, I don't remember who it was, um, here mentioned that, you know, Boaz is one of those rare characters in Scripture where nothing bad is said about him. That's kind of true. really strikes me. I mean, we think of some other heroes of the faith, Abraham, David, and there's lots of bad stuff that we know about them. But Boaz, squeaky clean, <laughs> as far as we're told. It's very fascinating to see that here. And the, the blessing is that he would keep on being faithful. We need that kind of praying for each other, that kind of blessing for each other. It's only by God's grace that people continue to be faithful. It's only an answer to prayer that people continue to be faithful, whether myself or others. And so this is a beautiful blessing uh, for him to act worthily and gain a reputation in Bethlehem. Then the third blessing takes us back to Genesis again, and it's a blessing of his family line, his household. May your house, verse 12, may your house be like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar, Tamar or Tamar, uh, bore to Judah because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So notice what the blessing is. Boaz is stepping in to play the role of the leveret. So the the first son that would be born to him and Ruth would not be legally his. It would be a son in the line of Elimelech. So the blessing in, the hope is that he and Ruth would bear more children together. They would bear more children together so that his family line would explode. And what's interesting is we don't know if that happened. We have nothing in the scriptures that tell us anything about this single son that gets credited to Elimelech. We don't know whether they had other children. We don't know anything about the rest of the story. Maybe we'll find out someday, but we don't know for now. But the blessing takes us back to Genesis again, back to Genesis part two, and a very interesting part of Genesis. And what we're supposed to see here is, again, there's a comparison. The situation with Boaz is a leveret situation. And so Boaz's leveret house is to be like Perez's leveret house. Now, if you remember the story, it's one of the ugly stories in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 38. Judah, great Judah, the one through whom the Messiah would come. The scepter would not depart from Judah's line. Great Judah has three sons in Genesis 38. The first one marries a pagan woman named Tamar. They don't have any sons, and God kills the first son of Judah. That's what the text says. God killed him. So, 
Even though the Mosaic Law is not a thing yet, we're in Genesis 38, the Leveret tradition is already being practiced and enforced. And so already in Genesis, there's this obligation for the brother to step in and provide offspring for the dead one. You might remember his name. His name was Onan. Onan married Tamar because he had to, but then he refused to fulfill the Leveret obligation. He refused to produce offspring with Tamar. And you know what the text says? God killed him. So the obligation of the Leveret is a serious deal, not something to bat our eyes about. Well, there's a third son, you remember, and Judah, seeing what happened to Onan, Judah says, I'm not going to let him marry her. That seems like a bad idea. So he withholds his third son from Tamar, and Tamar says, what's the deal? He's got an obligation. We've got to keep this thing moving. And so Tamar does something very sinful and very shrewd, but very sinful. And yet, God uses it. That's always something we've got to wrestle with. But she dresses up like a prostitute. She goes to where she knows Judah will be going. And Judah, great Judah, pays for her services and ends up conceiving a son with his daughter-in-law. Now, that's a big no-no, whether the Mosaic Law is in force or not. That's a big no-no, right? Well, you remember the rest of the story. He finds out about it, and they ended up conceiving twins. And so technically, he fulfills the obligation of the leveret. The father-in-law becomes the brother-in-law. Don't think it through too much. It'll hurt your head. But at any rate, Judah, with Tamar, conceives twins and parrots is the one through whom the royal and messianic line continues. That's the big point. Perez is the one who continues the line, and Perez ultimately becomes an ancestor of Boaz. And so if there was no Perez, there would be no Boaz, there would be no fixing this problem, there would be no King David, there would be no Messiah, etc. So God worked at these pivotal moments, and all across the system and the, and the times worked even through the sinful, ugly actions of a Judah to make sure that his purposes continue to be accomplished. The sin of his people doesn't derail the plans of God. Always important to remember that as a side point to this story. So at any rate, the hope is that Boaz and Ruth would be successful in having a son that would be counted as Elimelech's. Because remember, she was barren, right? She was barren for ten years... And now she's marrying Boaz with the hope that she could produce a son with Boaz. And that's what we see happening in the next verses. Verses 13 to 17. Act 4, scene 3, the birth of a Redeemer in Bethlehem. And this is what's really interesting. As you read these verses, it's talking about the Redeemer. And we've already been talking about Boaz as the Redeemer. But verses uh, 13 through 17 are not talking about Boaz. They're talking about the baby boy. And so suddenly, this Redeemer language gets applied to the baby boy, not Boaz. And so, Boaz is literally the Redeemer. He's the one who came in and paid money to buy the land and to deal with that issue. That's what redemption is all about. It's not about this issue of lineage. That's the leveret. And so now the baby is being referred to as a Redeemer. Look at it again. Verses 14 through 17. The women, this is the same women, or some of the same women at least, who in chapter 1 saw Naomi returning from Moab, and she told them to call her Mara, because God had dealt so bitterly with her. And now they're blessing Yahweh for what He has done. Blessed be Yahweh who has not left you, Naomi, this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. And at that point, we'd still be thinking we're talking about Boaz. But then, verse 15... He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So the son that's been born is now being described as the Redeemer. Now, I think you've got kind of a figurative use of Redeemer here. He's, the, ba- the baby's not paying money to buy anything back, Right? The the baby, as he grows and lives and becomes the embodiment of the family line of Naomi and Elimelech, he in himself embodies the new life 
that's been given. That's kind of the idea. And they use this redeemer language as a metaphorical way of describing his significance. He's given her a new lease on life. And you could say he bought it. He redeemed her in that sense. That he's given her a new start, a new lease on life, even in her old age. Um, It's interesting to think the women say that this baby has been born to Naomi. Although obviously Naomi didn't carry the baby in her womb. She wasn't sick for nine months and had all the difficulties. And yet, because this is the heir of her husband, he gets counted as her own in a certain way. This is not like a foster situation or an adoptive situation in any way. It's simply to recognize the significance of this boy, apart from his significance of being Boaz's and Ruth's son. They will raise him. And yet we see that Naomi takes a very active role, like so many grandparents do with their children. She's going to be very much involved in shaping this young boy, it seems. The narrator tells us then that the women of the neighborhood gave him his name, which is very, very odd. We would assume that Ruth and Boaz would say, yeah, that sounds like a good name. Let's do that. Um, They named him Obed, which is a word that means one who serves or a servant. And the idea would be this boy is going to serve Naomi and her family line. And then the narrator can't help himself. Before he's even done, he's just got to add... He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So he's already plugging that. He can't wait to get to that point because that's what the story's really about. And so we come to Act 4, Scene 4, and it's not really a scene. There's no action here. We get to read about the Redeemer's royal lineage, the Redeemer's royal lineage. It's a genealogy. And you might have thought that as I read it with such enthusiasm, I was being way over the top, but I wasn't. For a Jewish person, this is the meat of this story. This is why the story is here. This is why the story was written. It's not, a, just, just, it's not just a pretty love story. It has components of that. But the main purpose of this story is to give a backdrop to King David. That's why it was written. That's why it was inspired. That's why it was included in our Bibles. The genealogy tells all. So let's explore the genealogy real quickly. We won't spend a lot of time here, but it's important. It concludes the book not as an epilogue, not as just something tacked on the end, but as the very climax of the story. This is why Ruth and Boaz are important. They take the generations back to Perez. Perez. This is a stylized genealogy. Most genealogies in Scripture are stylized genealogy. What I mean by that is that they don't include all the generations. They skip generations at points. Most genealogies do that. We know that this one is stylized because it includes ten generations exactly. And number seven, which is a significant number in Israel's thinking, is Boaz. Now, they didn't mess with any of the, gene- the, 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 the descendants. They didn't, they didn't add some in or include some who weren't really a part of the family line. They just left some out. And they ha- you have to. Where you think the omissions are, you, you can take your pick a little bit. But the, the genealogy is divided into two sections of five. The first five uh, generations were people who lived in Egypt or in the wilderness. And then the second five are people who lived in the land of Canaan or Israel, if you like. But the place where you have to think about the division is right up to Boaz. Salmon fathered Boaz in verse 21. And we're going to see this genealogy repeated in Matthew chapter 1, in Jesus' genealogy. And we'll look at that in just a few minutes. But we're told an extra detail in Matthew's genealogy. We're told that Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Most likely this is the Rahab that we know of from Joshua chapter 2. So that means that chronologically... Salmon married Rahab, and that was during the days of Joshua. So either, either, the story of Ruth and Boaz takes place very, very early during the period of the Judges. And if you believe that, then after Boaz, you've only got three generations to get to David. So either there were some generations skipped after Boaz, or there were some generations skipped before Boaz. Personally, I think there were five generations skipped between Salmon and Boaz. The word fathered in Hebrew is very, very flexible. They don't have a word 
grandfathered. They don't have a word great-grandfathered. I guess we don't really in English either, but we can make it up and get the point across. But they don't have that in Hebrew. They use fathered, and it can... So let's make up another word while we're at it. Ancestored. That's the point. Ancestored. Without any indication of how many. Could be one, could be two, could be ten, could be fifty. It's not usually fifty, but it could be several. And that's often the case in biblical genealogies. Same thing is the case when you see a genealogy going the other way and it says somebody was the father of somebody. That word father has the flexibility to mean grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. It just does. So just bear that in mind when you're thinking about these kinds of things. And that's what we've got going on here, most likely. But nevertheless, the point is, the genealogy, the way that it's written and structured, it wants you to focus on number 7 and number 10. Number 7 is Boaz, number 10 is David. It wants you to focus your attention on them. This is all about the continuance of the line of King David. And so the story was written probably during the days of David's reign or maybe shortly thereafter, to give a piece of backstory to how it was that David continued, that David was even born, that he even came on the scene after such rebellion preceded him. With the sin and the wickedness that was going on during the period of the judges, it's miraculous how we get to the point of having King David. And this author wants you to know the story of what God did to make that happen. God had to do a bunch to make that happen. And so that's why the story is here. Now, we come to the conclusion of the story, and it is a beautiful story. The center of the story is not so much on Boaz's, Ruth, Boaz's love for Ruth or Ruth's love for Boaz. It's really centered on Ruth's love for Naomi, ironically. Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi, her love and devotion to Naomi has taken center stage in the whole story. And then Boaz comes in as this redeemer figure who fixes all the problems, And he is a beautiful picture of our Savior, Jesus. But the scriptures make this somewhat explicit. And so let's look at some of that. As we come to the conclusion, we need to consider the birth of the Redeemer. It is Christmas after all this week. The birth of a Redeemer is what the story of Ruth is about. But we want to think about the birth of the Redeemer. And so where Ruth ends, Matthew begins with a repetition of this genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Let me look at those verses just briefly. Read another genealogy for you because we don't read them often enough. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Chetzron, and Chetzron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And so we get the connection there. Matthew's genealogy is also stylized. He's broken it down into three groups of exactly 14 generations. Now, I'm pretty confident that that's not how the history unfolded. Three split uh, chronological breaks of 14 generations exactly. And again, we could look at other places to know that that's true. But his point is to center our attention on David and Jesus' connection to David. That's the point, ultimately. And so the genealogy continues right here to take us back and to see the connection between David the king and Jesus the king. Secondly, as we think about the Christmas story, we can think about, and the Redeemer who comes, we can think about a prophecy of the Redeemer, a prophecy in the New Testament, prophecy that we read often in the Christmas story, Luke chapter 1. Verses 67 to 75, the prophecy given to Zechariah, not Zechariah the prophet, but Zechariah the priest, who, would be the, who is at this point the father of John, who would become known as the baptizer later on. But he gives this beautiful prophecy in verses 67 to 75. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us 
in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so John's father, Zechariah, is talking about Jesus here. Jesus, who has been at this point conceived and is still in the womb of Mary. And so at this point, Zechariah is able to prophesy and to speak almost as a done deal that the redemption has come because the Redeemer has been conceived. Not even His birth, but His conception is the beginning of redemption for God's people. And so it is that as he hears and learns of the conception of this boy, Jesus, in the womb of Mary, he knows from God's inspiration through the Holy Spirit that this is the Redeemer, that redemption has come in the form of this baby in the womb. And so he prophesies that redemption is coming, the fulfillment of the covenants is coming, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham is coming in Jesus And the fulfillment of the promises to David, the royal covenant, the messianic covenant, the Davidic covenant is coming to its fulfillment in Jesus as well. All is coming to its fulfillment in the conception of this baby. Now as we think about the story of Ruth and the story of Boaz and the other redeemer, we see that Mr. So-and-so was unwilling He says unable, but we get the sense that he's unwilling to pay the price of redemption. Because the kind of redemption that was needed for Naomi's family was going to cost somebody something. It was going to cost him, and he thought the cost was too much. And so he refused to pay it. He backed out. Boaz stepped in and said, don't care if it costs me, going to pay it, because it's the right thing to do. Because I'm obligated to do it, and I want to please and obey my God. So like Jesus... Like Boaz, Jesus comes to pay the cost of redemption. But so much greater than Boaz. The the price that Jesus pays is much higher. Jesus paid a higher price for a more universal redemption. Boaz pays a little bit of money for a plot of land in the Middle East and redeems a family line. One little family in one little place with one little bit of money. Jesus comes to pay a price with a great higher price, so much higher price tag, and a far more universal redemption. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 speak of this. We read about John hearing and seeing the elders around the throne of God and the living creatures singing together. Verse 9, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb that he sees in his vision. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is redemption. That is what Jesus has done for us. Not by his birth to a virgin. Not by his being laid in a manger, but by his death on a cross. By his blood being shed. By his life being given up. We celebrate at Christmas the beginning of the human life of our Redeemer. But the redemption comes at the cost of that life. He didn't die as a baby. He died as a man who lived a perfectly obedient to God life for your sake and for mine. I've often asked the question, and I don't know that I've satisfied myself on what the answer is, but why Bethlehem? The story of Ruth is centered in Bethlehem. And uh, the birth of our Savior is centered in Bethlehem, of course. We sing about it. We sang about it this morning. We reflect on it during this time of year. But let me give you one reason from the Scriptures that I think is appropriate. The best I can probably say is that it's fitting. It's fitting that the bread of life would come from the house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. The book of Ruth began with a famine in Bethlehem, an ironic lack of bread in the house of bread. And Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life in John 6.35. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's what Christmas is really all about. The bread of life has come. God has given bread that gives eternal life. And the bread is His own Son. And there's no other way to have life other than coming to Him. Thirsting and hungering are things that you and I do every single day. And we go to the kitchen and we satisfy it so easily. But there is a hunger and there is a thirst that goes deeper. There's a hunger and there's a thirst that can only be satisfied by Jesus Himself. And that's the hunger that we're concerned about this morning. It's the hunger, it's the thirst that's related to our guilt. Our slavery to sin and death. In a strange providence, it is the breaking of the bread of life that provides the redemption from slavery. In a poetic sense, the price of redemption is the price of a loaf of bread. As we celebrate the birth of our Redeemer, we remember that He was indeed born to die. As one of my favorite Christmas songs says it, the breaking of the bread of life, the crucifixion of the Redeemer from Bethlehem, paid the price that set sinners free from slavery. And you can receive this bread, this life, today without paying a penny for it. Christmas is a perfect time to begin a relationship with Jesus. The baby in the manger grew up to live a perfect human life, fully obedient to God without any sin or failure or lack. And then he died voluntarily to pay the penalty for sins that we commit God then raised him from the dead. It's almost like breaking bread, putting it into the fire, and then bringing it out again with a warm, well-cooked meal. God showed by raising him from the dead that he was pleased with Jesus, that Jesus didn't die to pay for his own sins. He didn't deserve to die. He accepted Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of sinners. We, us, who deserve to die under God's judgment. Jesus now sits on the throne of the universe, but he's not done with us. He keeps on offering eternal life to sinners. And you can begin to experience that eternal life today, right now even, by beginning to trust him today. You know, I I don't know a lot of you, and I don't know where you come from. I don't know if you're visiting today and you've never been here before or you came with friends or family. But if you feel, maybe for the first time, this draw, this pull to come have new life, and you you don't know what to do next, please ask somebody. Maybe you came with family. Maybe you came with friends. If they come to this church regularly, you can probably bet that they know something about trusting Jesus. Ask them about it. And if you didn't, if you just showed up this morning and you've never been here before and you don't know anybody, just ask a random stranger in this room. Chances are you're going to find somebody who can help you out. But don't leave this morning without that. If you feel the pull, if you feel the hunger, if you feel the thirst, please talk to somebody and we will be glad to point you the right way. As we close our time this morning, I'd like to share a poem with you. It's the only poem I've ever composed. I was moved to write it in 2016 while thinking about this question, why Bethlehem? Why was the Savior born in Bethlehem? And I don't think the poem really answers the question, but it does, I think, capture some of the biblical picture of the wonder of Jesus' birth and the gospel message. And I think we've got the stanzas that can be put on the screen Um, So you can read along. Princes are born in palaces, unless you're the prince of princes. A meager manger will do, not gemstones, silver, or gold like the glorious kings of old. Instead, wood, hay, and straw decorate the nursery of the ruler over all. Princes are born in palaces, unless you're the son of God. Can any house really contain you? Perhaps the temple in Jerusalem or David's royal house, not the house of God, but the house of bread, 
Bethlehem Ephrathah, the smallest house of all. Princes are born in palaces, unless you're the king of the Jews. No proper place to lay your royal head. Always on the move you'll be, from Egypt to Nazareth, throughout Galilee, to Samaria and the Decapolis, and on to God's own city, where you will lay your royal head to rest. Princes are born in palaces, unless you're the savior of the world, doomed to die for others' crimes, crowned with thorns, robed in blood, pierced, crushed, dead, all for sinners' good. Victory through your death, the empty tomb proclaims. Now the prince has his palace, a new creation filled with his friends. Would you pray with me?